episode 118, Texting with the Dead. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an October 20th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Imagine, if you will, a world in which the living commune with the dead. For us, that's a bizarre concept, but for little Alberta Pennock, it was a fun pastime. Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a Ouija board used in Wichita, Kansas. Was the Ouija board the key to learning the secrets of the dead? Or was it just another educational spelling game disguised as fun? Then, we go behind the scenes to find out what artifacts give staff members the creeps. A museum collection is vast, with artifacts ranging from the bizarre to the downright dangerous. Find out what causes some workers to walk just a little bit faster and check behind them as they go. Finally, In Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, the award-winning Kansas author, to the Winchester Mansion. Built by Sarah Winchester and inspired by her unrelenting fear of ghosts, this massive structure has been scaring the pants off visitors since the late 19th century. Did White visit this sinister funhouse and lose his pants too? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, texting with the dead. Good morning, Mel. Good morning, Michaela. Today we're going to talk about a super creepy, potentially possessed Ouija board that's in the museum collections. And belonged to a family the family of Clarence Pennock of Wichita, Kansas. Indeed. So can you give us a description of the Ouija board? Sure. Um, It's a flat uh, flat wooden board, obviously, Um, and it has uh, a number of graphics on it. Uh, It has a flat, uh, or it's got a full moon up in the top left. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got the image of a crescent moon at the top right, um, kind of referencing mysticism. It has a yes and a no at the top, and it's got uh, the letters in the alphabet, um, arranged in an arc, uh, in an arch in the center, and, and um, Arabic numerals along the bottom. And then at the very bottom, it has goodbye. Um, yeah, it has goodbye at the bottom. And also at the top, you'll see um, the word registered. It's called a Ouija board, obviously. And uh, in case you don't really know what a Ouija board is, I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard of them. But basically, yes. it's a board that is a tool for communicating with the spirits. Um, spirits actually communicate with the users of the board uh, by moving a pointer or a uh, plachette. Uh, they use a pointer, and the pointer moves around, uses the letters to spell out something or answers yes or no to questions or indicates when the spirit is done by talking by um by pointing to goodbye. 
So the use of Ouija boards was directly related to the idea of spiritualism. Can you tell us a little bit about spiritualism? Sure. Spiritualism, it's kind of a pseudo-Christian religion, sort of like Christian or has some Christian origins to it. Uh, and it's it's a religious movement and a social movement, though not, not like purely a religious mu- movement. It took place from the 1840s to 1920s, and the goal of spiritualism was to was to communicate with spirits uh, usually dead relatives mm-hmm. um, to gain a better understanding of the world of the world through like guidance and insight from these spiritualists mm-hmm. which is actually the whole concept of spiritualism talking to spirits that's not that, that's a pretty old tradition even in ancient china i mean there's a whole religion that you you observe your ancestors and you communicate with your ancestors and they give you guidance mm-hmm. uh, for the future and this is kind of a hybrid of that um, the most critical p- component to Spiritualism is the medium. Um, so you have basically a religion, and you have the medium who kind of is the gatekeeper of the religion. The medium is that person who has the ability to facilitate communication between you and the spirit world. So not just anybody can chat with the spirit. No, no. Um, spiritualism originally, or, or kind of in the 19, uh, in that time period, you really needed a skilled medium, someone who had like a psychic ability to help help you communicate. So there was someone who could kind of control the concept a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then came and then came along a little something called a Ouija board, uh-huh. which eliminated the need for the medium. Now you could talk directly with directly with the spirits. So the board was kind of your medium. The board becomes your medium. Okay. Um, which is kind of also plays off of uh, the industrial age where people kind of view technology as solving a lot of problems of the time period. So now you literally are implementing a piece of technology, the board, to help you communicate with the spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ouija board really became popular right at the turn of the century, uh, the 1900s to the 1920s. Why? Because it was kind of the Facebook of its time period. So you had a lot of soldiers <laughs> going off to World War One. Mm-hmm. It was difficult to communicate with them. It was difficult to know what had happened to them. And, in fact, a lot of them died. So the way to communicate with them was using the Ouija board. So an example of the more famous... Believers, famous people that were involved in spiritualism. There was Mary Todd Lincoln was an advocate of spiritualism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Arthur Cannon Doyle um, was a huge advocate of spiritualism. Charles Dickens, um, and you'll notice like his like his story, A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Um, the spirits guide the protagonist. Right? They mm-hmm. teach him lessons. They help him develop. They come from the spirit world to help him along. So that's. You know, it's not necessarily, although it kind of sometimes gets mutated into being a wicked or sinister scenario, spiritualism was usually more about just kind of honest parental Mm -hmm. spirits guiding guiding the contemporaries. Using the wisdom of your ancestors, Mm -hmm. kind of. So I, I like the idea of it being Facebook. I can imagine a ghost spelling out, you know, LOL or right. OMG, and people are like, what? Right. <laughs> Maybe like your modern Ouija board needs to have like the thumbs up or thumbs down. I like, like or dislike. dislike. <laughs> so we kind of talked about this uh, with the mediums, but were the game boards the only way to contact spirits? Oh, no, no, no. Um, by the 1900s, spiritualism had kind of mutated into a, a degree of showmanship, and your mediums, who were the gatekeepers, had become you know, kind of celebrities of their time periods. And they could provide you that service to communicate with the dead uh, for, for the right price. So mm-hmm. you had mediums traveling all, over, all around, doing seances, helping people communicate with them. Seances would typically involve, uh, you, you know, you would communicate the, with the dead. You would be hearing rattling. You would mm-hmm. be hearing noises in the background, um, banging on walls, whatever process was needed for the medium to communicate. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that was the medium 
in, a, in their own parlor, or, or, or it was the medium playing some tricks. Sure, an easy way um, to make money. Right, feeding <laughs> off of feeding off of a mis- misunderstanding of it, or feeding off of grief at times. Mm-hmm. But um, so mediums and seances were one way to, were another way to communicate with the dead. Mm-hmm. The concept of the talking board is fairly old itself. Mm-hmm. It, goes, it goes all the way back to the Egyptians had sort of a similar arrangement by using boards to communicate with the dead. Again, Egyptians had a religion where the dead and communicating with your ancestors was important. Right. And they also used a board. What the Ouija board did was it combined the talking board with what was called automatic writing. And automatic writing was this idea that the spirit would possess you. Uh, Spirits could communicate through a medium or even at times just individuals. And they would begin writing and communicating, basically going through the subconscious, right? So you're not consciously writing something. Somebody is Mm -hmm. using Using you you. to write something. And I mean, this was like, this was huge. And this wasn't just on Ouija boards, you know, taking 20 minutes to spell out five words. There was people who wrote entire books right, yeah. through what was considered automatic writing. Yeah. And in fact, they weren't even, they, they, they were often not even credited as the author. The right, dead it was the person yeah. was the author. So there was, there was a lot of ways to communicate. You know, according to the ideal of spiritualism, there was a couple ways to communicate with the dead. Yeah, and the showmanship appears in the book writing, too, because the people would write books in front of an audience. So mm-hmm. people could see the spirit, you know, writing the book. So when did Ouija boards first appear on the market and where did the name come from? Okay, so the origin uh, of the modern Ouija board is a little bit, um, it's, it's difficult to know the full story. And why is that? That is because the people who developed it wrapped it in kind of this concept of mysticism mm. and, um, you know, and danger. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a marketing strategy to it. Sure. The board, the modern board, first appeared in the late 1800s, and it was sold by Elijah Bond and Charles, uh, Charles Kennard in, in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, they took out patents on it. Um, not exactly the version that we see today, but a pretty similar version. Um, so then... According to legend, um, one of the employees of the company that they both ran um, initiated a hostile takeover. His name was William Fund, and he uh, nefariously took the business from Elijah Bond and Charles Kennard. Uh, he's, you, you now have Fund in charge. He kind of basically uh, rewrites the history of the, of the Ouija board, saying he invented it. And then he comes up with this very convoluted... Um, story of his own death, of how he died, somehow installing a flagpole, uh, falling off the flagpole, uh, a series of, of of bizarre twists, and he eventually ends up dying on the ambulance in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So there's all kinds of, and, and he they kind of set it up as though he was um, it was retribution from Bond and Kennard for him stealing the company <laughs> from him. Um, so you know, again, the dead reaching beyond the grave. Fund ran the company, um, and his family, or I don't want to say his family, but his estate, kept running the company right up until the 1960s when they eventually sold the trademark to uh, Parker Brothers. Good old Parker Brothers. Yep. Kennard, he claimed that the Ouija, uh, Ouija board was an ancient Egyptian word for good luck. Which it is not. You didn't hear people saying Ouija, Ouija to say Ouija, good luck while you were no, in Egypt. I don't think that Ouija. Uh, no, the Egyptians were not <laughs> saying that. Um, no one's really quite sure where the name, where the word Ouija comes from. Um, Fund, who was always a little more clever than the other two, mm-hmm. uh, he came up with the idea that it was a combination of the German and French words for yes. So we and 
Jaw. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We jaw. We jaw. So I, you know, I don't know why someone would combine two words, two two foreign languages from the word yes, but whatever. But so I liked, I liked that one a little better. Okay. So the the Pinnock family who owned the board in our collection, did they ever report any mysterious encounters with the other side while using the board? No, they didn't. There's really oh. not a lot of written record of what their experiences were with the board. Um, uh, and the fact that the family owned a Ouija board really isn't necessarily surprising. Mm-hmm. Today, today we kind of associate it with dim, with with the occult or right. with kind of demonic possessions. But really, they had this in the 1910s, 1920s. It would not have been hugely odd for them to have it. Right. Um, it was kind of a parlor game, um, talking to spirits. Some believed it, some didn't. And most people, quite honestly, didn't think it was a huge deal if you were talking to spirits. So um, the fact that they had it wasn't really a necessary, wasn't really a big deal, and I don't know that there was a lot of tales of demonic possessions in, in the 1910s in the mm-hmm. 19-teens when they were using it. So really, whatever happened when they were playing probably really didn't even warrant being written down anywhere that it was significant. Um, although they did, they did make note of, of that the kids played the board, and it, there's actually a label stuck to the back of the board talking about um, the kids playing with it. But no exorcist stories. No exorcist uh-huh. stories, no. Um, the board belonged to Alberta Pennock, who is the daughter of Charles Pennock. And mm-hmm. the Pennock family, uh, they were kind of a middle-class family. The dad worked various clerk jobs. Um, and Alberta, she had two rambunctious older brothers who were probably always kind of, you know, could have even been the type that were trying to ham up ghost stories sure, or something. Sure. And she had a, a, a little sister who in pictures is really quite creepy looking. She's mm-hmm. very much the little pale. So I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but no, uh, not that I know of. Was there ever yeah. anything suspicious with the with the board and the Pennock family? Too bad. All right, so I have one more question for you. Uh, Ouija boards do seem kind of kind of like a load of hooey. So, what are some other uses for the board after the consumer figures this out? For example. I think the Ouija board would make a pretty awesome cutting board. I don't know that I would want to eat your deli meat that's been sliced <laughs> on, the, on the on the Ouija, Ouija cutting board. Uh, Come on! All right, so I thought of this. I came up with three possible uses for a defunct Ouija board. Okay. Um, number one, uh, a hoverboard. All right, mm-hmm. you saw Back mm-hmm. to the Future. They had hoverboards. I think you could do that with the Ouija board. I think it would be powered by the dead. Sure, that makes could sense. Could potentially hover. So, because the pointer is supposed to float, so why couldn't the board float? Exactly. Yeah, I think okay. it could work. Okay, so then my next idea was a Ouija board is about the right size to be a pet a pet door for a medium-sized mm-hmm. dog. Mm-hmm. And kind of quirky. Right. Right. Kind of, yeah. Kind of artsy for kinda your Kind of artsy house. looking. Yeah. Now, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, maybe your dog's going to get into Ouija a little bit. <laughs> maybe you'll be walking in and your dog is automatic writing. That's all, And then you're a millionaire. Exactly. So, okay, good, good. So that was my other idea. My final idea, I think a good use for the Ouija board, for a defunct Ouija board, um, would be as a TV dinner tray. Okay. You know, watch a little TV, mm-hmm. eating off your... But... Mm-hmm. Um, because really, I mean, the food from the TV dinner tray is pretty out of this world anyway. Yeah. So it's only appropriate that it would be a supernatural tray to eat it off of. <laughs> All right. Good answers. Thanks. Thanks, Merle. Cholera devastated residents of the Kansas prairie in the 19th century resulting in horrific deaths that destroyed entire families. With poor medical practices, the treatment of cholera would unknowingly accelerate its spread. As a nurse at a local military hospital in the 1860s, Elizabeth Polly was familiar with its effects. 
She was often seen roaming nearby hills in the evening, seeking respite from the hallows of dying soldiers. Over the years, many claim to still see Elizabeth Polly roaming the hills, but today, local legend refers to her as the Blue Light Lady. She's the subject of today's Kansas quiz. What is the name of the western Kansas town where one can catch a glimpse of the ghostly blue light lady? We are the ones that want to choose Always want to play but you never want to lose Whenever Halloween comes around, the museum staff frequently turns to stories of creepy things in the collection. You know, like chairs made of animal horns or rusty-edged weapons waiting to give you tetanus. So this year, we decided to dive a little deeper into the phobias and goofy fears of staff members. A museum can be a pretty creepy place. Most of the artifacts are held in a giant climate-controlled facility, like this one. This means that you as a staff member might find yourself working in a far back corner, surrounded by tiny dolls with hundreds of prying, beady eyes. Today, we talk to staff members and find out what gives rise to goosebumps. Hi, I'm Laurel Fritch. I'm a museum curator here at the KSHS. And I am in collection storage. And I am standing over a white arctic fox fur stole. And a stole is a woman's wide scarf that's typically made out of fur and it's worn loosely over your shoulders. The reason why I find this particular object a little bit creepy isn't because um, it's made out of fur. It's because basically the entire animal is here, from its tail to its feet, including its head. It reminds me of a stole that my great aunt had where the clip for fastening the stole around your neck was located right underneath the jaw of the animal and it would clip on to its tail. So basically, you'd be wearing a animal that is staring at you and eating its own tail. I'm Nikayla Zimmerman and I'm the registrar at the Kansas Museum of History. Right now, I'm standing in collection storage, not in a far back corner, but in a narrow aisle. And I'm standing beside my creepy thing, which is hair wreaths. And I'm not sure if it creeps me out or if it grosses me out. It's kind of gross because it's hair that's not on someone's head, but it creeps me out because it was once part of a living human being, and now it's in a frame on a shelf. Hi, this is Rebecca Martin, and I'm the assistant museum director. And I'm standing in the museum's main gallery looking at a Ouija board that's on display in one of our cases. And the reason I find Ouija boards really creepy dates back to a story my mother told me in childhood. She and her brothers and sisters were playing with a Ouija board when they were little kids. This probably was back in the 1940s. And it was answering their questions. They were asking the usual kid questions like, when will I marry? Uh, you know, will I be rich? Um, and then they decided that, that was, those questions were too hard to verify because they were way off in the distant future. So they said, let's ask it a question that it's going to be really hard and none of us knows the answer to. So they talked a while and then they decided the question that none of them could answer was how much change, how many coins are in dad's coin purse? Uh-oh. Yeah, so the Ouija board spelt out a number, let's say 58, 
and they went to my grandpa and they said, can we count how much change is in your purse? And it was 58 no cents. Way. It was. And mom said they never played with a Ouija board again. And ever since then, I have been really creeped up by Ouija boards. Well, my name's Bob Keckeyes, and I'm the museum director here, the Kansas Museum of History. And we are on the third level of collection storage mm -hmm. right now. And we're looking at a 1920s French doll, sometimes referred to as a Calvaire doll or Calvary doll. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Um, and it is just one of the creepier dolls I've ever seen. I'm creeped out by dolls in general. But this one is maybe about 12 inches high, uh, has um, very blonde hair and a little hat on, but the creepy thing is its expression. It has about a little bit of a half pout, but it has these weird eyes that are glancing off to the side. They're actually painted to be looking to the side, and they're kind of yellowish and sort of demonic-like, mm -hmm. and I can't imagine what this doll thinks about all day and what the doll next to it is thinking as it's being stared at all day by this really creepy doll. My name is Mary Madden. I'm a Director of Education and Outreach for the Historical Society. I'm standing in collection storage with Merle. He has asked me to identify what I find creepy in our extensive collection. I settled on uh, Dr. Feely's dental collection. I have been with the Historical Society a long time, and when I was a very young intern, we received this large collection of dental stuff, uh, you know, all the like tools and the, the molds and the just tons of stuff, and it was donated by men who had practiced here in Topeka for a long time, uh, Dr. Newell Feely. And once I got over giggling about his name, um, he was a very nice man. He was alive, and he had great enthusiasm about his collection. And the catalogers, and me included, we would try not to make faces as he shared the stories of how these tools were used. And I think he enjoyed seeing us grimace occasionally. And the drawer that uh, Merle has pulled out is just a flashback for me. It's the, the teeth, the dentures that, I'm sorry, even wearing gloves, ick, 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 you know, <laughs> just, and there's partial things, and they have sharp edges. When you free I'm Merle Riedel, and the answer to today's quiz is Hayes, Kansas. As the story goes, Elizabeth Polly was a nurse at the Fort Hayes Hospital. In 1867, she died of cholera, and her body was buried in the hills south of Hayes, 200 miles west of Topeka. Dressed in blue and seen carrying a blue lantern, stories of her encounter date from as recent as the 1950s. Though the blue light lady cannot be substantiated, legends of ghosts frequently develop around disease epidemics. Perhaps family members are comforted with the thought of a caregiving nurse with supernatural abilities. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Today, we are connecting the mild-mannered newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the most haunted house in the United States, the Winchester Mansion. Joining me today... Uh, joining me for today's Six Degrees of Terror is librarian Teresa Koble. Oh, hello. <laughs> and registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. 
Uh, Teresa, can you give us a little background on the Winchester Mansion? Because I think you may have actually been there before, correct? Uh, well, I received a T-shirt from there, oh, so but it's, it's the, like being there. That's the same thing. It's six degrees of <laughs> Teresa Coble. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Winchester Mansion is a giant three-story Victorian estate near San Jose, California. The house belonged to Sarah Winchester, uh, the widow of William Wirt Winchester. <laughs> what a unfortunate middle name, Wirt. <laughs> Um, I hope that wasn't his love, loving nickname. <laughs> hey, I think it's probably because his parents went and had three W names, and that was all they could come up with. Well, you know, Wayne is really nice. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, so she was the widow of William Wirt Winchester of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. So following the death of her husband and daughter, Sarah became convinced that the Winchester, that the Winchester family was cursed and sought the guidance from a spiritualist. The spiritualist gave Sarah the most logical of answers. Indeed, her family was cursed <laughs> of course. Of course, uh, by the spirits of all those who had been killed by Winchester rifles. Makes sense. So, uh, so what was the solution? Build, baby, build. In 1884, <laughs> Sarah purchased a farmhouse in West California and immediately began spending the Winchester fortune by renovating and adding more rooms to the house. With work continuing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the next 38 years. So for 38 years, there yeah. was constant building going on in this house. Wow. Wow. Talk about a hobby. Yeah, <laughs> that's an expensive <laughs> hobby. Holy cow. All right, Nikhil, you want to give us some uh, features to the, uh, to the Winchester Mansion? Well, sure. The theory is that Sarah built the Labyrinth House in order to trap and confuse the ghost that haunted her family. Which, you know, do you really want to trap things that are haunting you? I think you'd want to make them flee. Get away. I don't know. But I, th there would have potentially been a lot of ghosts because the yeah. Winchester family, I mean, they, they were, they, this is right, you know, in the 1860s during the Civil War, the Winchester family made a ton of money from selling arms to possibly both sides during the, during the Civil War. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that would have been ticked at the Winchester family. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you know, 38 years of building, it would take that much probably. Um, so the features of this veritable fun house include 160 rooms, including 40 bedrooms and two ballrooms, so a heck of a party house, <laughs> one completed and one under construction. The house also has 47 fireplaces. 47 fireplaces in a Victorian manner. That's an incredibly poor idea. How did that not burn down? 17 chimneys with evidence of two others. Where, where were these fireplaces, uh, you know, exhausting? I don't know, 47 chimneys and 17, 47 that's, fireplaces and 17 chimneys. Some equations are not working out right there. good math. I guess that's so the ghost would go in the fireplace and not be able to get out. Anyway, two basements and three elevators. Did you read that there's, I guess, a long-lost uh, wine cellar somewhere in the house? Really? Yeah, they never recovered it, so there could be a massive fortune in booze. Wow. So, and then you can build on some more to the house. <laughs> so Sarah loved the number 13, as all superstitious people do. And there are 13 bathrooms, spiderweb-themed windows with 13 panes, and there are 13 chandeliers. The serving staff actually needed a map to get around the house. There are stairs that lead to nowhere and sealed rooms containing the damage from the 1906 earthquake. So that's kind of cool. It's kind of a document of the 1906 earthquake. Absolutely. Indeed. Yeah. Cool. Indeed. So, Nikayla, I believe you also have a solution. Can you connect William Alwhite to the Freak House in California? I can. So, as we mentioned, the Winchester Mansion was built using funds from the sale of the rifle of the same name. So the family fortune was used to build the house. The fortune came from the gun. Winchester rifles were issued to the Texas Rangers, not the baseball team, but the law enforcement agency from Texas that dates to 1823. 
The Texas Rangers saw some serious action during the Mexican Revolution that began in 1910. <laughs> there were no federal military forces on the U.S.-Mexican border, so the Rangers were called to keep peace. It didn't necessarily work out so well, and thousands of Texans and Mexicans died. Oh. Probably at the hand of Winchester Rifles. <laughs> so there's more, can- more ghosts in the mansion right Sarah there. Sarah never right. stood a chance. No, <laughs> poor lady. She was destined to be crazy. <laughs> when the U.S. did get involved in the Mexican Revolution, it was because Americans owned 27% of the land in Mexico through companies who did business there. Both Presidents Taft and Wilson intervened, with Wilson sending troops to the border among them, Frederick Funston. Oh, Freddie. Uh, and Frederick Funston and William Allen White were BFF during their days at KU. And actually, probably, Funston at some point owned a Winchester rifle and probably killed somebody with it. So one of his ghosts, oh. the ghosts he created, could be in the mansion, which makes the connection even stronger. Right, How? right. Yeah. You know, the only one that could really <laughs> confirm that would be a spiritualist. And right. uh, we just don't need to track down one of those. Yeah. Well, you know, Halloween's coming, so. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, Teresa, would you like to give us the challenge for uh, the next six? Degrees of William Allen White? All right. So the next episode, we connect William Allen White to Queen Noor, Dowager Queen of Jordan. Uh, born in Washington, D.C. in 1951, American Lisa Hallaby met the King of Jordan while working as an airline executive. Within a year, the couple was married, and Lisa was now the queen of an Arab kingdom. Very and, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how, how did she not get as much press as Grace Kelly? I think she got a lot of press. Grace Kelly, I think, was the first wife. Queen Nora was the third wife of of the king. Of the king, okay. So, status thing, you know, know, third wife's never as important as a first wife. (laughs) I don't know. So, come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to Queen Nora, who who turned out to be the better entourage member, a newspaper editor from Emporia or an airline executive from D.C. Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. That concludes episode 119, Texting the Dead. If you dare to look at an image of this early Ouija board, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcast. Your feedback is always appreciated. Tell us what you think of our podcast or what you would like to hear about. Leave a comment on our iTunes page or fill out a podcast survey from our website. Finally, come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr examines a Panama hat worn by President Harry Truman. Though rarely seen today, this style of hat once adorned the heads of presidents and French emperors and even helped fund a South American revolution. Find out how the Panama hat changed the world. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.